Tooth & Nail Records' newest artist is singer-songwriter Tyson Motzenbacher. Good to have you here on The Antidote, Tyson. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dave. I have to tell you, I was surprised with you getting signed to Tooth & Nail. Because, I mean, most of their artists fit into the rock genre. Yeah. But with you being a singer-songwriter, have you found that to be an odd fit? Uh, I was really surprised uh, when we got interest from them. Because I had this album done for a little over a year before we even started shopping it to record labels. And so um, when we got interest from Tooth & Nail, you know, I like grew up listening to tooth and nail bands and stuff. And I'm from Washington state, which is where they're based. And so, um, I was really surprised, but it was, it ended up being a kind of really fun and unusual fit with them. So. Well, that's interesting though. They did show that interest in you. Yeah. Because it is such a, a break, but I don't know, maybe tooth and nail itself is changing a bit. Yeah. That's kind of, um, true a little bit. I mean, th- looking back, like, you know, they, I mean, they, they did some of the early Peter the Lion records and they did um, a Damien Gerardo record, I think. So I, I know that they've done stuff like this in the past, but it's been a while, like a long, long while. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really neat that they showed that interest. You're far from a newcomer in the music scene. You've recorded a pair of EPs until it lands in 2010 and three years later, Rivers and Roads. How different are those recordings from your new release, Letters to Lost Loves? Yeah, well, um, so the first EP that I made was that the one that you talked about called Until It Lands. That one was a lot more of like kind of a classic indie rock record. And uh, I did that one just kind of like, um, we just did that kind of like out of somebody's garage. Like we tracked that one <laughs> kind of like piece by piece over a little bit of time. And then the second one was... Uh, after I made it until it lands, it was like, or I guess it was just re- my realization that making things is hard. Like making good stuff is really hard to do. And a few months after I made that first EP and I was, I was like a little bit disenfranchised with it. I was like, this is, this isn't communicating what I thought that it was communicating at the time, or I'm not as, as happy with it now as I was then or whatever. And so I, I really struggled making the second one. And that's why there was a few years in there where I was like making things and destroying them. And then, making new stuff and destroying it. And and so I think when I finally got that thing out, it just felt good to be like, okay, like you just kind of just need to be making things. You got to keep moving forward. And so that was what the second EP was. We were talking about bad music just prior to this interview started. <laughs> now, yeah, what we does it take to make something really good? Oh man. I mean, that's a conversation that we could have for a long, long time. I think that the one part of it is, at least in my opinion, is that there needs to be a certain element of honesty in it. It needs to be, feel honest and true. And um, I think that one of the hard things about being a young artist is that a lot of times you don't really know what you believe about stuff, but you also don't really know how to have a voice that, that sounds honest or that is honest, you know. Um, and so I think that's something that takes growing into. It's funny that honesty is something that takes growing into, but I think that that's true. Sometimes can't you be too honest? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. What's an example that you think of being too honest? Where you're being so honest and so self-revealing that you're actually reliving the moment yourself, the struggle. Yeah, man. I think I think that as an individual, that's a line that you really have to draw. I mean, this record that I made most recently is pretty revealing. It's a pretty honest and pretty like all out there thing. You know, it's talking about some really personal stuff in my life and. 
I found that like kind of throwing that out into the world, especially with like kind of the anonymous nature of the internet and stuff, it's that's a really hard line to to walk because people can just comment on it. Like anybody can just throw their opinion in into the air about this thing. And that's not something that normally happens. Like you're walking down the street and somebody is like critiquing something really personal about you. That's never going to happen. So actually a good friend of mine just recently, he said, you know, people that make really personal records, he said, usually their second record is really anonymous. I thought that was really interesting. He said, it's, he said, normally people that make stuff that's really revealing about themselves and personal is the second one's just kind of like pretty run of the mill lyrics and nothing too specific because it's it like hurts it's like it's hard you know to like put that stuff into the world and just have people see it so now you've already laid it out for what your sophomore full length is gonna be yeah it's just gonna be <laughs> like garbly nonsense yeah you'll be excited to hear that one i'm sure <laughs> oh we'll just have another justin bieber around yeah there you go <laughs> well, let's talk about the opening song from the album in your name, it talks about God being given credit for answering prayer for essentially unimportant things, but not healing your mother. Mm-hmm. That must have been a huge struggle to your faith. Yeah, it was. It was the catalyst to a lot of things. I think that I've had to talk about that song probably more than anything else. And I think it's because it's, you know, there's a lot of things that get criticized or get critiqued in faith or like as a Christian person. And the one that doesn't really get critiqued is the idea that prayer matters and works. And for me, that was like kind of the first thing that was like the open door. I was like, well, if this is something that seems to not make sense to me right now, that that opens the door to like kind of reevaluating and reinspecting everything from the ground up. Um, which was what that album kind of was in a way it was like me kind of walking back through a lot of things and, and looking at them in a new light. And yeah, I mean, I, I think like unimportant, that's a hard word. I think like, like, I mean, you know, in the, in the, in the song, it talks about like somebody talking about their basketball team, like they're praying for their basketball team and the team gets better. And they think that God did that or that for me fits into unimportant. Yeah, totally. I mean, and I, I think that, you know, a lot of things are really important to people, you know, and, and things that they would pray about. And for me, it was like, I think that it was more yeah, it was more like an evaluation of like, if he if he is not listening to this one thing that's so important to me, and that I believe is like important with a you know capital I important, which is just like people suffering, right? Right. Like that to me is important, and if God is who I thought and think that He is, then like that that matters. Like people suffering matters. So yeah, I think that that was a thought of like, yeah, why does he bother to to do all these other things? Like, why does he change the weather for people, you know, according to, to them? God changes the weather. He makes it sunny for their church potluck or whatever. And he does all, he, he's like working in these schmarmy politicians or like these TV preachers and stuff. <laughs> oh, and, we don't want to get into TV preachers. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to do that. You know, go, going through life, there's there's times when you believe one thing and then there is alternative evidence to the contrary. And those moments, I think, are opportunities in our lives to take those two things and put them in a ring and make them wrestle each other and decide and then see what comes out the other side. I think that's good for us. Well, something about the song is that it comes across almost as being cynical. I don't know if that was your intention, that was your feeling, or if that was just a byproduct I certainly felt cynical at the time, you know, I mean, like sitting there with my mom who was 
very clearly not going to make it out the other side. And hearing all of these voices in my head of what people had said that God had done and sort of looking at God and being like, what's the deal here? Like, why, why, why are you not like, what's the problem? I mean, there's the line in that song that I think people don't really catch that I think is maybe the gnarliest one in the whole song is that it's talking about like the faith without works is dead verse in James. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's me saying like, this is what the Bible says is that if you believe something, but you don't do anything about it, then you aren't real. And so it's me saying that if you choose to stand by idly, then what does that make you? It makes you not real. Like if you, if you're not acting on the things that matter, then you, you aren't real. Like, and I think that was my reaction to it was, I, I know that I see the perspective isn't static between what I see and what you do, which is like, that I do not see the nominal world, right? Like I only see my window into it. But if you're not acting, if you don't do anything, then you're not real. I remember writing it down and feeling like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just wrote that down. And then being able to say like, hey, this is what I'm feeling right now. And this is, I do feel very cynical and I'm very, I'm angry. And like, if God is, if God is real and big, then he can take me criticizing him. So I don't know. I think that that was really actually a healing process. Like being able to feel cynical about something was a healing thing. Sounds like the time of David in the Old Testament ranting against God. Yeah. And people have said that to me. And he was always one of my favorite characters in the Bible because I felt like he was an honest character too. You know, he was always telling God what he thought about stuff and God could always take it. You know, he was always, he said that David was beloved of God. It's like, and he was, he was the most angry the whole time. It's like kind of awesome. I really like that. That comes back to the honesty aspect. Yeah, exactly. So then is that what you were really intending with Letters to Lost Loves? Not to be cynical, but just to be simply honest? Um, man, that's a great question. I, I don't know if, to be honest, I don't know if I knew what I was trying to do when I started. Um, I mean, I knew there was a theme in there. You know, that, that um, basically that like one, one of those realizations that we come to in our lives is that, is that like the things that we love go away and come, don't come back. And what do we do with that realization? Does that mean that it's not worth it? Does that mean that like loving things is not worth it or that like walking through life with a hope is foolish? And I think that that was the big question that I was wrestling with the whole time. If this is the case, if the things that we love go away and don't come back, then what does that mean about life in general? Does it mean that it, like, what, what do we do with that? You know, when I was, I, when I did that tour with John Foreman from Switchfoot, he asked me in the van one night we were driving and he said, he said, what do you want to say? Like, what do you want your message to be to people? And he said, if you're, if you're going to grow into a greater audience, then what, what's the thing that you want to say? And I told him that I wanted the end result of my music for people to feel like everything was going to turn out okay for them that there was ultimately a hope in all of these themes that are pretty dark in my music, which is that like we are up against a big wall of darkness, but that it's okay. Like that there's something better on the other side for us. And um, I think that was a really cool moment for us in the van talking about it. And it's a cool moment for me now that I don't want any of these songs to feel like that, you know, and really the themes that make up the majority of the record, I don't want that to be what it's about. I want it to be this feeling that like this is here and you can put that into the world and it's ultimately okay. Well, that must've been something traveling with John Foreman. Yeah, man, he's the best dude. He's a, he's a great guy. He's a good person. (laughs) 
Well, we were talking about that form of traveling, but we got to talk about you. Because just days after your mother passed away, you left to walk up the coast all the way from San Diego to San Francisco. You know, I know that dealing with grief can be so personal, but did you find that time on the road to be healing for you? I did, man. I I did more than anything else. I it was it was. I tell people all the time that, that was the best thing that I've ever done. Um, was that time? People people always ask me like, well, did you did you hitchhike? And I was like, and I tell them, I didn't do anything except walk up the road. I mean, it was. I walked about six hundred miles. It took me like a little over a month to do it, and. I think that like in my life and in just sort of our society now in general, there's just this, everything's so immediate. Everything is within sight. And when something is so beyond sight, like when something is that far away, you're forced to be only where you are in that moment. Because looking any farther than that is just going to kill your spirit, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And that was exactly what I needed was just to be exactly where I was and, and kind of taking all of those thoughts and feelings. And I actually wrote songs on that walk. It was like just sort of humming melodies or ideas. And that was where a lot of the record came from. So um, it was, it was incredibly healing. It was the best thing that I've ever done. And I'm really grateful for that time. I'm really glad that I did it. So every day you're out walking, I guess, rain or shine. And you're doing what? Sleeping at the side of the road? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, you know, I've I've been driving that stretch of coastline over and over and over for years, and so I knew I know people along the way and stuff. But I mean, you know, it's a big stretch of road, and I like there's the cities, so you know, I would know somebody in L.A., and then I would know somebody in Malibu, and then I would know somebody in Santa Barbara or whatever. But those those are still like four or five or six days, and at one point there was like you know a couple of weeks in there um, from basically from Santa Barbara to like Monterey. Um, these are, these don't mean anything to you, but if there's any people that know California geography, then they'll know what I'm saying. (laughs) Um, but, uh, those, those areas were just like, yeah, long stretches of walking and, you know, around 3 PM, you got to start looking for a place to sleep because you never know what you're going to find. You know, you got an hour of daylight left. So you kind of just find something and hope that nobody comes and wakes you up in the middle of night and tells you to leave because that's not fun. (laughs) (laughs) And did that happen? few times one time in uh i was in ventura and i (laughs) i I was really really tired and i I set up my tent in these like kind of these bushes by a resort and there were all these security guards walking around and i was sure that they were gonna come make me leave one of the lessons that i learned early on in the trip was that people don't notice anything that was (laughs) yeah that was something that i learned early on was that like especially when that's all you're doing is noticing like when you're just walking and noticing, like you realize that people don't notice anything. And so at one point I was, I was camped out next to this gate and there's like seriously five or six security guards and their whole job is to watch the gate of this resort. And I was camped out like 20 feet from them and they didn't know that I was there. <laughs> um, but in the middle of the night, probably like one or 2 AM, all the sprinklers came on. Oh no. And, and they were all around me. And I had a tent and stuff. It wasn't like I could ride it out, you know. They were right. underneath the tent and under the rain fly, and they were ev- everywhere. And like they all came on at once, and so I had to get out of there. And I was, and then it was in this uh, kind of like concrete dust, you know, and like mud is, is what all the dirt turned into. And I was like in my socks and <laughs> trying to get my tent out. And then I pulled it out into the grass, and then all the security guards saw me like 
with all the sprinklers on trying to like pull my stuff out of the bushes. <laughs> and uh, that was a bad one. I ended up just walking all night that night, actually. I just packed everything up and started walking again. Wow, and it wasn't even like you could start your day off saying, yeah, at least I'm all fresh and clean from the sprinklers. Right, yeah, no, it was the opposite of that. There was no such thing as fresh and clean on that entire walk, actually. <laughs> and that's why nobody would have picked you up hitchhiking anyway. Yeah, they did. nobody wanted me in their car, that's for sure. Taking this on a personal level, you were left behind after your mother's death. But your song, House in the Hills, changes the focus of loss. It's got a mother being left behind after her 12 sons and husband are killed during a war. What brought that topic into your mind? Man, I, I was in a, a few years ago, I was in Kansas City, and I went to the World War I Museum there. And, um, you know, I've always, like, I've always been fascinated by sort of the, like, makeup of wars, like why they started and the political things and why the generals moved the armies where and, and all that. And so that's, like, kind of an upstairs view of war, right? Like, you look at why things happened and how they happened. And when I was in the World War One Museum, like I think the one thing that I that I saw was that they they rebuilt the trenches in there. So it's like these big muddy trenches, and and it was all these people that that all these young people that were younger than me at the time that that felt like they were doing something noble and brave. That was like one of the high forms of human existence was to go off and fight a war for your country. And then they went off to war, and the they sat in the mud and like just watched everybody die. There was nothing about it that felt brave or romantic for them. Like they, all they could do was sit in the mud and, and wait. And um, I, w- I was just sort of struck in that moment. Somebody said, "One death is a tragedy, and a million deaths is a statistic." I'm trying to think about who said that, but but anyway, yeah, that's I think that's true. If you look at a million deaths, there's no way to personify that, like to make it seem real. But one death is a tragedy. And so I'm looking at this and I'm thinking like, man, okay, if I could boil this war where all these millions of people died down to one person, it's that this one person died in the mud in World War One, And then you multiply that, right? So now there's that happened in every village to every family across Europe. And, and then it sort of started to take shape for me and I was able to like understand the war a little bit better for the first time you know, one of the things about that song is that you don't know who they are, right? It's just this family. Like they could have been Russians or they could have been Nazis. Yeah. Right. Like they could have been anybody. What I think I was realizing as I was writing that song was that like, um, ultimately like what war means is that a whole bunch of normal people who love their families and are trying to do the best they can, they all die in the mud. And, that that is really what war means on the biggest level. The smallest level of war is, is the tactics and like the movements of the generals. Like that's the smallest part. The big part is that all these people die in the mud. That's Um, right. It's the personal level of it. Exactly. Yeah. Something similar at the war museum in Ottawa here in Canada. Yeah. And I know they have the one thing with Passchendaele, which was a huge battle for Canadians. You know, they say right. that sort of defined a Canadian identity. But it's so disturbing because the mud was unbelievable. Yeah. And you knew that people had died in the mud with never being wounded. Right, totally. They were literally just swallowed up in the yeah, mud. Yeah, they being swallowed they by the mud, yeah. Uh-huh. 
which is just horrendous to even think about. It's unbelievable. Yeah, they, uh, in that thing they were showing about, in that thing in Kansas City, they're showing about how they put boards across the, the mud so that you wouldn't sink. Because if you stepped in the mud, you were going to die. Like, you would, they would swallow you. That's crazy, man. Yeah. It's brutal. And the Canadians, you guys were some of the first ones in, man. Yeah. World War One. One out of ten Canadians went to Europe in the war. Right. You know, which is just wild. You think you got six million people in the country at that point, and right. 600,000 go to war. It's that's like, incredible. how do you even do that? Anyway. Man, that's amazing. Way off topic. It's okay. <laughs> I think a lot of people might struggle with the concept of the song Can't Come Home Again. Mm. I mean, I'm curious as to when and how a person you know, comes to that realization that coming home just isn't an option. Yeah. Oh, man. And I think that, like, people in cities, I don't think, understand that song as well. Um, because cities are kind of these breathing entities, these organisms. But I grew up in a little a little town. and Okay, if you say it's little, how little is little? Man, I'm trying to think about how big it is now. It's called Pullman, Washington. It's about six miles from Idaho on the border of Idaho and Washington there in eastern Washington State. Um, so Washington State University is there, which has, I, I'm, if I say any numbers, they're going to be way wrong. So I'm just not even going to do it, especially because I don't know what it is now because the <laughs> town has changed so much. Um, but basically what happened was that when I, I was in middle school or high school or something there, a guy developed a chip that was eventually to go in the first iPhones. Oh, in this like kind of this like research laboratory there. So when I left for college, the town just it just exploded. It changed so much. Um, I mean, but when I say exploded, I mean in relativity to the size of the town, it just changed so much. Um, and, and I think like what I realized is that you know it's not just the your home that changes when you leave it because your perception of it, your remembering of home changes. You know the nature of of leaving something that is so embedded in you is that you're going to romanticize it and change it and, you know, move the details. And so the reality of the place is changing. And also the reality of the place in your mind is changing. And those two are like, you know, they're ships that are traveling apart from one another. And so the moment that you step foot out of town for the first time out of your hometown, it, you can never go back again. And I think that's part of growing up is that realization that's you always think that it's going to stay the same when you're a kid like this will stay the same forever and then when you leave i think that's one of the first steps of really growing up is the idea that it's like it's i think it's the first real like face-to-face confrontation with the passing of time right and of course people tend to romanticize the past you know you can be a senior and say i remember when i was a boy you know, and it was all so perfect and fine and pristine. But you do. I think you gloss over the negatives. You totally gloss over the negatives. And that's, I think that's the nature of, you know, sentimentality and nostalgia is that it's not really like that. It was never really like that. But you can make it like that later. You can only remember the parts that were really great if you want to. Um, if you miss something. It's easier to miss something that's perfect, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that. You can kind of make the past whatever you want. It's the, like, I walked to school uphill in the snow both ways. You know, it's the same idea. Or this town used to be so much greater. The past was so much greater than the present. And the future, even. Like, like I think that's what that's part of that, too, is looking backwards. is like It's almost like a, it's a comfort 
in a place of fear because you're able to say like, I remember that things in my life were good, even though the future looks scary. Living in the imaginary cocoon. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Hey, I want to finish up with a talk about, I guess, really what's your rawest and most personal song on the album. What kind of a struggle was it revealing yourself so intimately in your relationship to your mom on the song Honest? Yeah, man. Um, that was a tough. That was a tough one. Actually, the two songs on the record I almost didn't put on were "In Your Name" and "Honest" because they were the two that I originally didn't write them to be on an album. I wrote them sort of like as therapy or something. You know, I was writing them as remembering. The song "Honest" was after I did that walk across California, and you know, there's this moment when you like say, for instance, when you take a trip or a vacation. And you come back and people say, how was your vacation? And they don't really want to know about the vacation. But but it was such a big moment in your life, right? They don't, they don't really want to know. And I think that that's like the first few vacations that you have, you think that people really want to know about it. And you tell them and then their eyes kind of glaze over. And then you realize <laughs> that they don't really want to know about it. Because they have no context for it. You can tell people about another place. And if they have no context for it and they can't smell the place then it doesn't mean anything to them. And so when I came back from that walk and people knew about it, obviously, and they would say, what was it like to walk across California or to like, you know, what was, how, how are you doing? What was it like to lose your mom? And I knew that they didn't really have any context for it. And I knew that they didn't really want to hear about it. And I don't blame them. You know, it's not nothing on them. It's hard. That stuff's hard to hear about. And, there, if you have no context, it's not something you can even grasp. And so honest was something that I was trying to, If I, I basically said, if I had to ask myself that question, what was it like? Or like, what does it mean now? What would the answer be? And I couldn't come up with an answer because it wasn't in those words. The things that were lost or the things that it meant were just these lists. So I started writing down lists of things that it meant. Like when I got to the Golden Gate Bridge, San Francisco, after that walk, um, I figured out that I, that nothing had really changed. I just understood myself a little better. That was all that had changed. And and then so it's me asking the question. Well, then what what do you understand better? And then it's a list of things that were lost. You know, it's like these things that my mom used to do and say, and and little gifts that she bought for me. You know, it's just like it's a pair of jeans and it's a rude awakening. It's all these like lists of things that came to my mind. Um, and then the second time is, is me saying that, like, you know, that I found that that's like going back to what we were talking about with there being hope in the end is like, I found there's a humor and a long and fond goodbye. Like that there's like something smiling about it. There's something smiling in tragedy. And the second list is, is me saying is trying to see the hope in it. My mom left me this, her, one of her ski passes. She was like a ski patrolman and stuff. And she left me one of her ski passes, like her season's passes from 1988. And her smiling really, like really silly in this ridiculous hat. <laughs> and she left it for me in one of the, this box of things that she kind of left for me. And it was such a funny thing to leave in there. And I felt like it was a message from her saying that there is always a joke. There is always a happiness and a humor in the things that are lost because it's a memory. It's a, it's a good memory. And it's a good story, you know? And so the last line of that song says that it's a photograph folded in my wallet, which is that picture that she left for me, um, to remind myself that what she left is only growing bigger over time. 
What a great memory. Yeah. So was she quite an outdoors woman? Yeah, she was. She used to run marathons and climb mountains. and She rode her bicycle from Seattle to Boston when she was 22 <laughs> across the continental U.S. So, Oh, wow. She was a tough cookie, man. <laughs> what do you think listeners will draw out of Letters to Lost Loves? That's a good question, man. And I'm I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of discovering that as we go along. You know, the record's been out for a few weeks now, and there's a big uh, list of the things that people get out of it. And I think the hardest part about it is that it deals with you know such heavy content matter that the things that I get back from people, it's really heavy content. You know, it's people that have lost and have suffered a lot, um, and always. I think the thing that they say is that this was a this was a comfort for me. It was a comfort for me in this time. I had a, I had a guy send me a message over Instagram the other day, and it was kind of vague. And he said, you know, I just want you to know that I've, you know, I lost someone really really dear to me, and uh, your record's been a big comfort for me. And I I, I like kind of looked into it. I, I found the story of what had happened in the news on the internet and it was just heartbreaking for me. It was, it was horrible. I was, you know, I was up at like two in the morning reading this story on, on the news of what had happened to this guy's family. And I think reading that and seeing that like, man, this is so awful. Like what this person's going through is worse than what I went through. And the fact that what happened to me was a comfort for him. That is such a gift to me, you know, and that's that's always my hope. I've told people that I don't want this record to be about my situation because the specifics of the situation are ultimately just a drop in the bucket of human experience and that I want it to be something that's pointing towards the greater hope in the human experience is something that's a lot bigger than than me in this story and that's the hope of what people get out of it and I think that at least for the most part that's the experience that they've had with it so well, Tyson, I read somewhere on your blog where you had talked about interviewing yourself before an imaginary audience and giving back the answers. Hmm. I don't think you need any practice doing interviews, man. This has been a really, <laughs> really great conversation. Oh, thanks, Dave. I had a wonderful time chatting with you, man. Tyson Watsonbacher has been here on The Antidote. Thanks again, man. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. One of these days when I'm over on your neck of the woods, we'll grab a beer together. Totally. <laughs>